Well, we're going to continue on, obviously, in our study of Proverbs, and as we have been doing, we've been looking at a very a variety of major sweeping categories or themes that are uh, fairly dominant in the book of Proverbs, and of course, we started in this subject or this category of the home and family, uh, talking about foundational wisdom for home and family. This is the third uh, lesson in our series in this particular study, and uh we have an opportunity today to really step into a discussion about the relationship between uh, parents and children and really focus in on that part of our study of home and family and look at what Proverbs teaches in that regard. Um, As we sort of introduced the study, we talked about this, two really primary, I think, um, principles that have emerged so far. Um, Again, these are just sort of foundational overarching principles, but the first one deals with the, the formulation or the formation of the family in the context of marriage with the understanding that Proverbs upholds the creation ideal for marriage. It does not advocate some type of um, archaic, you know, Old Testament, negative, patriarchal, male-dominated society kind of view. It holds up this creation ideal of marriage where there's this relationship that produces joy in the intimacy and in the fellowship and in the partnership that exists in the relationship of marriage. But it also puts forward for us, and this is where we kind of move in, you know, ahead in our study, it, it, it upholds uh, the foundational union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, for the essential purpose of producing and preparing future generations to uphold the law of God so that civil society is protected and preserved. In other words... Proverbs, and really Scripture in the, in the main, puts before us this view or this vision of marriage and home and family as this training ground. It's really, it's really a seminary of sorts. You know, we've talked about this in the past where everything is theological. Everything that we think about, everything that we understand, every way that we react to life, every way that we engage in relationship, it's all stemming in some way from our view or understanding of God, of His world, of His purposes, or our denial of that very God who made us and made the world and everything in it. And so the same is true when it comes to marriage, home, and family, relationships with parents and children, that it is to be this environment in which the law of God and the purposes of God and the plan of God and the character and nature of God are consistently being instructed explicitly, but are also being manifest and demonstrated by the environment that's being created by the husband and the wife, the mother and the father. Now, nothing can be more exciting from one vantage point, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, to come to a place where you can go to Proverbs and you can really focus in on uh, uh, the, the, the responsibility of beating our children, right? I mean, that's because that's what it's all about, right? It's about, it's about taking control and, you know, really, really living up to the stereotype of secular society that, you know, our, our objective really is, is how can we justify, you know, our, our yanking up our children by their collars and, you know, beating them into submission with rods even. Like, let's get out the rods, Rods, plural, if we can. Let's use more than one. In the South, we call it breaking your hickory. There you go, breaking your hickory. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that when, when we think about this, 
in the context of what our purpose is in home, marriage, and family, of really it being about future generations, about, about the, the purpose and will of God being upheld and perpetuated and instructing the, the youth in the law of God and the purposes of God. Let me, um, let me ask this question. I, again, I don't like to, to be too presumptuous. I think I know how you'll answer this, but, um, but let me just put the question out there just to confirm it. Would you agree that the more a person, a family, a society reflects the character of God the better off that person, family, or society? Just in general, would you agree with that? Okay, that's good. I wouldn't want to have to do a whole other study. <laughs> um, so, that begs the question, what is God like? What is God like? I mean, if we would say that the, the more a person, a family, a society reflects the character, the nature, the person, the essence of God the better off that person, family, or society will be. What is God like? Holy. Holy. What else? Just. Just. Orderly. Orderly. That's interesting coming from you, math teacher. (laughs) Orderly. Yeah. What else? Obedient. Obedient. Patient. Patient. Kind. Kind. Yeah, you start to see how when you think about this in the context of the very nature and character of God... It should begin to formulate in our minds a context for parenting, a context for family life, primarily in focusing on the responsibility and privilege of shepherding children and of raising children and of disciplining children. Now, obviously, the, the, the common prevailing secular opinion is, for example, in this area of discipline, that spanking is bad. Spanking children is, you shouldn't do it. And, and there's, in fact, it's, it's harmful, ultimately. I mean, that's the prevailing secular wisdom. And as I, as I did some, some, not extensive, but fairly lengthy research, reading some, a variety of articles and, and uh, kind of looking at what's, what's been written and what are some of the studies that are out there and you know, what, are they, what is their rationale for this and all that, um, what I found was that there's primarily one major study that was done that a lot of the other articles that are written often point to and reference to draw this definitive conclusion that this form of discipline by parents for their children is really, really bad and has adverse impacts. And it's a study that was done by researchers Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gershoff and Andrew, uh, Andrew Grogan Kaler from the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Michigan, respectively. And in the study, the reason why this study is so often referenced is because it, it certainly is, uh, uh, it does have the um, characteristics of being very comprehensive and in many ways very definitive. Because it's a study in which they evaluated 75 other published studies that spanned 50 years of time. So they looked at research and studies done in this whole area of spanking children over a 50-year span of time, 75 of them. And basically, out of that analysis of, of that span of research over that period of time and that number of studies, those range of studies, 
they found, they concluded that spanking was associated with 13 out of a total of 17 negative outcomes, including increased aggression and behavioral and mental health problems, as well as reduced cognitive ability and self-esteem. Okay, so, and this is a this is a, a scholarly study that was done, and it was you know well documented. And so, basically, when you go out there and you read about this, you'll find references in some way or another, oftentimes, to this seminal um, study that was done. And basically, the 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 gist of all of it is that. Um, Spanking is sort of an archaic idea, an archaic practice. It doesn't, it does not fit within a modern context where we know what we know now. And they would equate spanking with other things that would be considered archaic. You know, they would put it in the context of, for example, medical treatments. You know, you wouldn't go, if you, if you were having some kind of serious chronic ailment, you wouldn't go to your local bleeder and say, you know, can you cut me and bleed me out for a while so that I can get this bad thing out of my system? I mean, you wouldn't do that, right? Right? We wouldn't do that, right? Um, so, so, in other words, this doesn't fit, this whole archaic concept or idea or practice doesn't fit with what we know now. Um, and, of course, if it does, in fact, lead to these very negative outcomes, then why would we want to um, have that as part of our parenting approach or parenting strategy in the home? So this, this, really, um, this really does put a lot of parents, even faithful Christian parents, a little bit on edge and, and makes people feel a little bit insecure and causes parents to second guess how they are supposed to handle discipline in the home. It, it, re- it really, has, really has done that in, in many respects. Um, the other thing that complicates it all is that um, oftentimes as parents, especially you know, when we're younger trying to figure a lot of things out, um, we, we really feel like nothing works, right? I mean, is that not the common experience of parents? At least it has been for me. Is that you, you, you have in mind that you want to make something work with your children. We, we have a mindset of fixing the situation, of, of just sort of correcting what we're seeing as bad and making it good. And so our approach oftentimes, or our perspective oftentimes, is very, it's very isolated. It's very sort of narrow in, in its scope. And it's also, also very formulaic in its approach. You know, we want, to, we want, we want a, a, a discipline model, a parenting model with our children where this plus this equals excellent child, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the subtle trap that we fall into. But when you look at Scripture in the main, and then you get to Proverbs in particular, what you see is this very broad yet consistent context for home and family and parenting, in which discipline and instruction occurs faithfully. That, that's, that's the model. It's not one of these short-term, you know, immediate results-oriented kinds of ways of looking at it. And that was one of the, the failure points that other researchers pointed out of this big study that so many point to, is that it had too narrow of a scope in terms of what it deemed as 
the context in which this spanking was occurring and the outcomes that they were measuring. It was too narrow. The scripture gives us this much bigger, as it always does, this much bigger and always way more transcendent and eternal in orientation kind of perspective, even on parenting and even specifically in the context of looking at discipline in the home. And we need to have that that broad, sweeping, transcendent context in our minds when we think about these things. Now, we can, we can point to some of the more common passages um, that inform us in the area of home and family life and marriage and parenting and those kinds of things. And I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to reference them to kind of begin to, to set our, our minds in this kind of general biblical context with this before we get into looking at this more closely in Proverbs. But, of course, I mean, you would go to Ephesians, for example, and, you know, you have this beautiful section in Ephesians chapter 5 there at the end where you have this, uh, this injunction of husbands and wives and, and they're to submit to and love one another. And it's this picture of Christ and his relationship with the church. Um, and it's just the, a, a really a, a theological vision of the role of husband and wife in the context of home and family. And it's substantial in its weight. I mean... For wives to submit to their husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ, her head, and for husbands to be called to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in sacrifice to, to, to purify her, to make her pure, you have this very weighty, very theologically profound view and vision of marriage that becomes the foundation of the home. Then you get into Ephesians chapter 6, it begins to speak very briefly about children and parenting. In chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And then verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that, that last section there, instructing the fathers, gives you a great view of this context that we're talking about. First, you have the husband and wife relationship that is essentially theological in its orientation. It's in direct reference to God and to his Christ and to the relationship of Christ in the church. It's given this profound sense of substance and meaning, and that is to inform even the very practical day-to-day experience of husband and wife relationship because the context there is instructing husbands and wives in their respective complementary roles in marriage. So there's a very practical implication here that your home and your marriage and your family, the environment that you're cultivating should have a transcendent nature to it. Even in the midst of all the practical, day-to-day, mundane, ups and downs and ins and outs and challenges, it should never be detached from this transcendent vision, this transcendent image or or picture that is being modeled and and created here. And you get into this this instruction on, on parenting, When you think about the nature of discipline in the home, 
This does not give you the indication that this is about just purely subduing children and controlling them. Because the, the admonition is first to the father to not provoke the children to anger. There is this assumption in this passage that the father and his approach to discipline and instruction is going to flow out of character that's being formed in him through Christ and by his submission to Christ. But then the responsibility is given to him to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, balancing in the same way that Proverbs does this responsibility of both discipline and instruction. The discipline is not this isolated thing. It's a self-contained thing that, you know, they get out of line and you get out your rod and you, if it's longer, you can do it from further away and you just slap them into submission, right? It's, 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 a, it's a full-orbed context here. And Ephesians gives that to us very clearly. Colossians, in a similar way, much more brief, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 21, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So again, the foundation here is the... Is the the um, sound nature of the husband and wife relationship as the backdrop for all of this. And then children, verse 20, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So any instruction on discipline for parents is not oriented toward discouraging children. Quite the opposite, right? Now, they might be discouraged for a moment, right? I mean, you, know, you can't like in, invoke discipline and have them be happy about it. But you understand, the broad, sweeping context here is clear. This is not simply about an isolated practice of corporal punishment. It's much bigger than that, much more substantial. Now... When you get to Hebrews chapter 12, again, just trying to kind of put all this in, in, a, in a big context, what often is um, cited, as I said before, even those who are trying to be faithful to their understanding of Scripture and the injunctions of Scripture, who, but who would also want to um, be wise, quote-unquote, in their, in their listening to science and modern research and the findings of modern research and may come to a conclusion that, you know what, this, this research on, on you should never spank your children because it has these harmful effects, I, I, I got to listen to that. If they, if they come down on that side of the equation and yet they're trying to reconcile that with very explicit instruction that we'll look at in a moment in Proverbs, for example, on discipline, what often happens is it gets sort of confined to this is sort of outdated and archaic and we have to kind of interpret it properly in its context to know different time, different place, we shouldn't bring that into you know, a modern context or, or really that doesn't reflect. In fact, I read one writer who said, you know, and actually he was a, 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 a Methodist um, minister and a, I guess a trained um, psychologist I believe was his pedigree. But um, he basically said, I don't see anywhere in the teachings of Jesus, you know, disciplining your children with a rod. So he referred to, you know, almost like under a new covenant, under a covenant of grace, you know, those kinds of ideas where it's no longer about law, it's about grace. It's those kinds of, you know, assumptions that, that typically inform this kind of thinking. But that was his sort of 
statement about it. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses, this, this is a great passage to just give us this broader, overarching context to, to help us think properly about this subject of discipline and instruction in the home with children. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, starts this way. Therefore, and I'm not going to be able to go back and explain what the therefore is therefore. Just You can go back and read prior, prior chapter um, in another time. But since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the folks that are, that are named and their example is given for us from the Old Testament in the prior chapter, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So now we're getting into Jesus' talk here. This is, this is the New Covenant context, right? And it's, it's, it's talking about how we are to live our lives in light of both this great cloud of witnesses, Old Testament saints, and looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That is a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, if the context for home and family and parenting, in its broadest sense, has this responsibility for training the next generation to know the law of God, to revere the law of God, to uphold the law of God, to live in light of the character of God. All these things that we've already mentioned. And God is one who disciplines. And in fact, this passage tells us that it is an evidence of sonship. It is is a characteristic of the Father's love for His children. That completely turns this whole idea of progressive, that's archaic, that's outdated, totally on its head. What is outdated and archaic are forms of discipline that are strictly oriented toward maniacal control, toward expediency and convenience, 
towards the sheer will and pleasure of the parent to just have things peaceable the way they deem them to be peaceable. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's no good. But this context, again, brings that transcendent eternal perspective to bear even in our view and understanding of home and family and even discipline in raising and training up children. That we are, think about this, when our kids show up on the scene as little ones, how are they developing their vision of who God is? How are they understanding why they're here? How are they understanding what is important and what is not important? How are they determining what to value and what to not value? I mean, that's why I said it's a theological training center from moment one. And their perspective is being informed and shaped by us as parents. And not just by the words that we're speaking, but by the character that we're manifesting. And so in the context of our homes, in the same way that we see this passage in Ephesians referring to this this enduring, basically working out our salvation with fear and trembling, our struggle with sin, setting aside these things that hinder us and entangle us, and recognizing that even if we're being disciplined and chastised by the Lord for our sins, we need to recognize that as a gift from God, from the God who treats us as children that He loves. That when we see this in this context, we then recognize that that's what, that's what we're doing with our children. That, that's, that's, in a sense, what we're to be reflecting in our own homes with our children. Now, again, it's very easy for me to stand up here and, and paint this picture in these really great, glowing you know, terms. I, believe me, I've got two kids of my own. I, I understand that, that, guess what we also bring to this? Our own sin, right? And therein lies the challenge. We need to recognize as parents that as we're seeking to train and nurture and instruct and even discipline our children that the environment that they're experiencing this in ought to be an environment of our own repentance and our own humility and our own recognition of our own sin, right? Again, it's about an environment that we're cultivating in our homes in which discipline and instruction is a pivotal part in the raising of children. It's not about yielding up some specific result that oftentimes is oriented to our own self-aggrandizement in the community that we you know, operate in. We want our children to look a certain way, to act a certain way. Why? Because it makes us look good, right? I mean, can we just be honest, right? That's, that's, that, that happens. We, we do that. And if that's all that we do, that's a problem. But if we recognize this greater vision for home and family and parenting, this, this, this more transcendent context for it, and we cling to that, and we continue to re- run back to that and have our minds renewed in those truths over and over again, you talk about helping us be more effective at cultivating this kind of environment in which grace, in which kindness, in which justice, in which order, in which love, in which all the character of God is being manifested routinely. That is a powerful environment for training up children in the way that they should go. We're going to talk about that verse at the end, too. So, 
That's just a little context for us. That's some context for us to understand the relevance and context of discipline and instruction. The relevance and context of discipline and instruction. It's, it's much bigger than getting our kids to do what they, we think that they need to do or they're supposed to do and disciplining them when they don't. It's much bigger, more substantive than that. Well, let's talk a little bit about this rod of discipline and instruction because that is a big part of, uh, you know, big theme or, you know, sort of the more penetrating and provocative uh, um, instruction that's in Proverbs regarding parenting. So let's just go ahead and start there. Let's talk about this rod of discipline and instruction. A few verses that we'll point to. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, for example. This is a warning to parents. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And, you know, this is pretty clear. I mean, pretty straightforward. There's a warning here. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Well, why is that so important? Look at Proverbs 22.15. Proverbs 22.15 tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now here's a bit of a, a risk or a danger in this particular passage. It's very easy in our minds, in our thinking, and in our practical day-to-day experience with children to, to immediately attach to this statement about folly being bound up in the heart of a child, to attach to that a meaning of childish foolishness, to, to attach to it this, this idea of them being you know, disruptive and sort of disobedient in their childish folly and, and sort of, you know, the simple, the idea of them being simple-minded. They're, they're just, they're immature and they're foolish. And so, you know, they have to be corrected because they just, they just do st- silly, stupid, foolish things. But this really is a bigger idea about the folly that's bound up in the heart of the child. It's the same folly that's bound up in the heart of adults. Right? It's, it's the same thing that plagues us in our flesh and our humanness. And yet it's referencing the fact that they're in a place where the culpability for that training falls to the parents as they're growing and maturing. And so the idea here is it's not just us correcting foolish behavior in a moment in time. It's, it's that the discipline that we're bringing to bear is correcting and instructing them in the risks and perils and the dire warnings that you see all throughout Proverbs that pertain to a life of folly, the trajectory of living and decision-making that's oriented toward foolishness and scoffing and actually walking away from the very person and character and nature of God altogether and suffering dire consequences. It's that kind of folly that is in view here. It's the comprehensive idea of folly. But it's bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, there's a theological reason here for this. The same reason that we need the discipline of the Lord applies to children because there's folly. 
there's flesh, there's foolishness. And there's a point in time in the raising of a child where they're not going to be able to respond effectively and consistently to mere words is the idea. Now, when you, when you read these studies, what you'll see is a lot of reference to practices that are aimed at appealing to the child's reasoning faculties over against some type of corporal punishment, some type of physical punishment, you know, a paddle or a pop on the hand or whatever. And there's this, there's this emphasis on, on appealing to and engaging children in their rational faculties. Um, now, there's all kinds of sort of developmental challenges to that at younger ages. That, I mean, they, they just don't have the capacity to, to reason on a higher level um, in all cases that, that they would you know, refer to in some of these uh, studies. But I, I, I couldn't help but go back to, again, I always find myself going back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And look at that appeal that the serpent was making to Eve. It was an appeal to her reason. It was an appeal to her to think about this. Really? Did God really say this? Don't you know that... If you eat of this tree, you'll be like God, and that's what God knows. In other words, it's this lengthy conversation about what's really missing here in this whole equation that God has set up. And so oftentimes, we find ourselves in situations as parents where the time for conversation is really over, or the time for conversation really is not even effective because there's not the ability to reason effectively with a child in this case. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14, again, another warning. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I mean, right? I mean, if you, you understand, right? You, it doesn't mean that you just, that's not free reign for us to, you know, but the idea here is, is if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. It's, again, it's, that, it's that, that challenge to those of us who would shy away from this responsibility because we're, we're thinking too cautiously about the outcome or the effect. Not about the environment we're trying to create and not about the trajectory of life that we're aiming for in our children. The long view. He says, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. In other words, in the same way that living life according to the law of God in God's world that he made is better for anyone than not, just in general. I understand the whole issue of salvation and, and, and the power to live a godly life is... is um, um, only possible by those who, are, who have been brought from the domain of darkness and the domain of light. I mean, I understand all of that, but in general, living out practices that are oriented toward, I mean, that's where we get our legal system from, for crying out loud, that governs society. It, it derives from transcendent laws and principles of God. And so the idea here is that you will, you will create an environment in which he will thrive. He will be able to thrive. He will understand that, that foolishness, that sin, 
that conduct that defies the law of God can have painful consequences. That's the early lesson that young children who don't have the capacity to to think in abstract concepts about long-term consequences of a lifestyle of sin need to learn very early and very young. That's the principle here, that sin, foolishness, defying the law of God, has consequences. They are absolute, they are certain, and they are ultimately severe and can be painful and even deadly. That's the point, and that's the principle. And he's not going to die. He's not going to die. In fact, it could be one of the very tools in the broader exercise and endeavor of parenting that helps point him toward life, not death. Now again, if our discipline is always characterized by heavy doses of our own sinfulness, then yeah, that's right. Just like in anything else, in any other relational interaction, if we're bringing truckloads of sin ourselves into that interaction, guess what? Bad outcomes ensue. The same is true here. This instruction presupposes everything else that we've been looking at and that's written in Proverbs on instruction, repeated instruction, repeated warning, repeated uh, pointing toward blessing and reward for living a life of wisdom in the, in the, under the, under the, in the sight of God. This is the context in which this is understood. In Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now again, you think about this in, in the context of just the practice of discipline. There is literally uh, books and research articles that are written that ultimately equate to leaving a child to himself to sort things out. We're going to talk about that in just a minute when we look at another passage in Proverbs. But this, this particular passage says don't, don't do that. that. That will bring shame to his mom. That's, that's a bad approach. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Why? Because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So that's just the survey of this rod of discipline and instruction that you see in Proverbs. Again, in the larger context of home and family and parenting. But let's talk about the response to discipline and instruction. You have the rod described, and it is actual, an actual injunction toward corporal forms of punishment, toward instructing children that there are consequences and even painful consequences toward uh, for violating the law of God. And, and, and the objective is for them to understand the nature of God and the nature of God's exercise of His just, justice in the world that's being manifested and, and, and fleshed out in the context of the home. Again, recognizing that this requires and assumes repentance, godliness, faithfulness, not, not provoking to anger, it assumes all of that. Let's look at the response to discipline and instruction. The first thing we need to understand here is that um, our faithfulness 
Indiscipline in instruction does not guarantee favorable response, right? We know that practically in small ways, but we also need to understand that in bigger or long-term ways as well. I mean, for example, you see this sort of conditionally set up in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you. And then he goes on to talk about that in more detail. There, there's conditions here. that The discipline and instruction that we're bringing to bear, the response has to follow on the part of the child. And ultimately, the child becomes fully culpable for that response. Proverbs 15, 31 to 33. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So there is this comparison and contrast, which Proverbs often does, to being attentive or listening to the instruction, taking it in, living it out. But if you ignore it, you're despising yourself, and you will not receive the blessings that are elucidated here for those who listen to this instruction. Here's another outcome or response to instruction that's possible. Proverbs 17, 21. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. So there is this acknowledgement in Proverbs that our discipline, our instruction, our faithfulness does not guarantee some outcome. Again, that's why I want to stress the importance of understanding we're not looking at some kind of ironclad formula that if you just add this to this, then you get beautiful, perfect child and successful, thriving, godly adult. Proverbs gives us the indication that even in the midst of faithfulness and instruction, there's conditions that require the son to listen, to heed the instruction, and there are consequences for failure to do so. And there is real sorrow that could be attached to that for the father. Proverbs 10, verse 1. This is, this is on the joy side and the sorrow side. It gives both pictures. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And then, in, again, down in verse 5 of chapter 10, regarding the, the, the son who, who is not prone to laziness. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. The implication here is that this is an environment where instruction is taking place, but laziness, laziness and sloth could be a real thing that is grasped, grasped and held onto by, by children. Proverbs 13.1, A wise son hears his father's instruction. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And then, even more to the heart of the matter, Proverbs 29.3, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. So you have in Proverbs this, this picture given 
that, that instruction and discipline requires a faithful, obedient, submissive, trusting response on the part of children. And to the extent that that doesn't occur, there are sad and even ultimately dire consequences for the child and sad outcomes for the parent. It's, it's a possibility. It's, it's definitely a possibility. In other words, we don't need to attach too heavily our measurement of an outcome to our success in the parenting and discipline and instruction process. Our focus needs to be on faithfulness. Faithfulness to working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, faithfulness in walking in humility before our God, and faithfulness in bringing to bear the kind of discipline and instruction that is consistent in the home, such that it is helping to cultivate that, that transcendent environment of promoting the character and nature and knowledge of God and His law and His purposes in this world in the home and family. It just becomes like the oxygen that is being breathed in that environment. But it requires a response. It requires a response on the part of our children. There has to be a willingness to listen, to receive it, to treasure it up, to value it, to not ignore it, to not despise it, to be diligent, and to love it, to love that wisdom, to love that instruction, to trust it, and, to, and then to walk in it faithfully. That, that's what's required in the response for a faithful son. Well, let's look at some of the rewards of discipline and instruction briefly. I say briefly. I have to hurry. So, the rewards. So is it not true as parents, like I said before, um, nothing thrills us more, would give us more joy than as... Uh, is it John who said to see my children who are walking with the Lord, right? I mean, that's, that's as Christian parents, that, that's, that's what we pray for. That's what we hope for. That's what we invest so much time and energy in Bible studies like this and reading books and talking to people and getting counsel. That's what we hope for. And so when we come to, for example, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That almost sounds like a bit of a guarantee, right? That, that goes back to the formula. If this, then this. Bingo. Nailed it. Right? Well, I want to kind of, there's a couple of things I want to say about this, but the first thing I want to kind of introduce to you is that it's possible that this verse has been misunderstood and even mistranslated for years and years and years and years. And I want to kind of give you a little bit of an overview of that, of that point. Um, in a scholarly theological journal, the, the journal for Dallas Theological Seminary called Bibliotheca Sacra, there was a series of articles that were published that were based upon lectures given by Dr. Douglas K. Stewart, who is an Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And the lecture series was entitled, My Favorite Mistranslations. And in, the, in, this, in this series, he took up as one of them, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Now, when you look at sort of the traditional understanding, the traditional interpretations of this passage, the assumption is that this passage is about raising up children and teaching and training and guiding them in the way that they should go. So in other words, I understand from God's word, this is how they should live. This is the way that they should make decisions about this. This is, this is what moral life looks like. I mean, so I'm going to train them in all these ways in which they should go. And if we do that, if we're faithful in that, then when they grow up, they will not depart from that path that you have set out for them. And in many people, even in light of the understanding, mean, many people understand that Proverbs, they're unique, and they, you know, they, they assume that there's choices and consequences. And, and even though we understand that Proverbs is not to be taken as ironclad guarantees, it doesn't stop people from leaning in that direction, from relying upon that kind of sort of mathematical, formulaic understanding of the passage. Even though we would say, but we know, you know it's, these are principles, these are axioms, and, and it's not a guaranteed outcome. We understand that. But still, it's seen as a statement that you know, should be the, the norm. And then there's three kind of primary truths about this that are understood in this traditional interpretation. The first one is this acknowledgement that this verse is clearly about raising children. The second is that this verse tells us to carefully train children to live the right way. And the third assumption is that this verse says that those who are raised rightly will continue to live rightly, whether that is a given or a guarantee or not, that that's sort of the axiomatic principle. Again, raise children, train them in the right way to live, and they will generally continue to live rightly, even if that's not fully guaranteed, that's the general thing you can kind of count on. It's a general axiomatic wisdom principle. So Dr. Stewart um, has you know, examined this and, and has come to a different understanding, both of the translation of the passage as well as the interpretation. And the first thing he points to is that this train up a child in the way he should go is not about little children. It's actually about adolescence. He says the word that is almost universally translated child is na'ar, and it generally refers to a marriageable male who is still single or a young teenager. He points to Brown's Driver and Briggs that gives the primary meaning a boy, a lad, a youth. It can refer to a younger boy, but the most common object of the term is a young man. And his article has a lot more information about that, but suffice it to say that to start with, it's not referencing a small child. It's more likely referencing a a young man, a youth. And the verse is focused on how parents are to raise their adolescent children, so it's more a youth group verse than it is a preschool verse. Okay? That's That's his point. Second thing is that it's not about how a child should go, but about him going his own way. According to Stewart, the key to the mistranslation of this verse and the common misunderstanding of it is the addition of the word should in English translations, something that is not supported in the Hebrew text. A more literal and faithful translation might be raise a teenager in his way. Instead of train up a child in the way he should go, raise a teenager in his way. 
The verse is about letting a teenager go his own way without instruction, correction, or discipline. It's all about letting him choose for himself and set the course for his own life. And while this is held out as good parenting by many in our world, it is described here as dangerous with disastrous results. Stuart traces the history of the mistranslation of the verse, focusing on problems in the Septuagint translation of the verse that led to issues with Jerome's translation into the Vulgate, which led to the King James Version translator misinterpreting and mistranslating the verse. You got all that? (laughs) Septuagint to Jerome to Vulgate to King James. And rather than correcting that mistake, all the English translations have followed the pattern of the familiar King James Version. Here's the next part. When he is old, he will not depart. Is a warning, not a promise. It's a warning, not a promise. The gist of the argument is this. This is not a promise to parents who raise their children properly, but a warning to those who allow their adolescents to grow up without guidance, who raise them to go their own way. Medieval Jewish philosopher Raubag offered this interpretation of the meaning of the verse. Train a child according to his evil inclinations, and he will continue in his evil way throughout life. Richard Clifford, in his commentary on Proverbs, gives this paraphrase. Let a boy do what he wants, and he will grow up to be a self-willed adult and capable of change. And then Stuart gives his own translation of the verse. Train an adolescent in his own way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So the summary here is that this verse, according to Stuart, is meant to be a warning about the bad results of permissive parenting, of failing to set boundaries and give guidance to adolescents. They will develop character and form bad habits that will stick with them throughout life. And the parent who sits back and says, I'll just let my child pick his own way, is an utter fool. That child will go his own way and develop character flaws that will follow him and plague him all his life save but for the grace of God intervening. That's the principle. So you get the picture here. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So when you think about it, it it certainly makes sense. It certainly makes practical sense that if we, I mean, I read the Proverbs where, you know, if you leave a child to himself, that's a horrible strategy, right? You don't leave a child to himself, but you discipline them. Well, it would fit within that that framework as well. But this really does change dramatically what we often assume about this formulaic approach to parenting and instruction and discipline. If this, then that. And what he's saying is, yeah, if this, then that, but it's a different if and it's a different then. But it's the same that. He will go his own way when he's old. Now, there are some that would, would... argue a little bit differently, but there's not a lot of, you know, vehement debate or argument against that. Um, Waltke, in his commentary, has a little bit of a different take on it. Um, he thinks that it is referring to a trajectory of, a, of, of, you know, a good pattern of living that's oriented toward uh, a, a son listening to instruction. In other words, the assumption or the premise there is that the son is responding to the wisdom and the instruction of a parent. And so in that response, he will live out his life in the right way. So that's kind of his take on it. But there are the, there are the issues of translation here that are very real. The bottom line is, is that uh, whether you, that, that to me is much more palatable than to see something that's translated in that way that seems to set up almost an ironclad guarantee. 
that really may not really be there in the text after all. And we know that to be true anyway when we think about the broader context of parenting. The fact of the matter is, is that none of us, none of us live our lives to the glory of God apart from the intervening sovereign grace of God, right? I don't care how well you understand Proverbs or Ephesians or Colossians or Deuteronomy 6 or any other passage of Scripture that deals with parenting, apart from the sovereign grace of God and a, and a, and a, and a faithful submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one goes there the right way, right? That's what we've got to constantly be reminded of as well. That we are utterly dependent upon God doing a sovereign work of grace in us as we are dependent upon him doing a sovereign work of grace in the lives of our kids. Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to have to close. I'm going to have to skip that one. Maybe I'll come back to it. Let me just close with this. So, wrapping all this kind of up a little bit here. We are talking about parenting in context. We're talking about the responsibility of home and family life, cultivating an environment in which the character of God, the law of God, the grace of God, the benefits of the gospel, the the humility of repentance, is the environment in which discipline and instruction occur. And it's the t- it's discipline and instruction is one of the means in which we cultivate that environment and perpetuate that environment so that our kids, regardless of their response, at least they have grown up in an environment where they understand there is a God. He, he has revealed himself. He has issued forth a law of right and wrong, of good and evil. There is a, a need for him in your life. He has created everything with purpose, ultimate purpose, and it's according to his purpose. All these different things that we are seeking for our kids to be aware of and mindful of in the environment of parenting. And and the hope and the prayer and the often end result of faithful cultivation of that kind of environment in the home, I think is stated well in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are a crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. You have this picture of this long view of the blessing of grandchildren and this reciprocal uh, gratitude and appreciation of children that the glory of children is their fathers. That's, that's what we hope for. That's what we work for. That's what we strive for trusting ultimately in God to do the work that only he can do, right? I'm sorry that I kept you guys long. We're going to have to pray and be dismissed. Father, we're grateful for the time. I pray that you would help us. We are certainly frail. Uh, we're weak. And, um, and we definitely bring our own sin and our own folly into our parenting. Um, and yet that presents with us, uh, us with an opportunity to even demonstrate to our children the very grace of God that we depend upon for salvation and for forgiveness. And it gives us an opportunity to manifest repentance. So help us to be faithful in the kind of environment we're cultivating in our homes. Might be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful in our discipline, faithful in our instruction, according to your word, in Christ's name. Amen.